My name is Wayne Martin. Glad to be here this morning. Glad you're here. And we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to continue with our Bible, with our Sunday school class on, on the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. So as we begin, let me, let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll just jump right into this together. Lord, we thank you for your clear word. We're thankful that we can understand it. We're thankful that your spirit lives within the believer. We How we need your spirit, Lord. And we're just grateful that you give us your word and your spirit, the illuminating work that you do in our lives. You help us to see clearly and correctly. And we're, we're glad for, for the rev- for the revealed Word of God that teaches us and grounds us and gives us confidence and authority to speak on your behalf. And so help us this morning. Help us this morning to see this subject and to um, be able to exalt Christ, to be able to exalt you, our triune God. And so thank you again for this opportunity. And may your people be greatly encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have been asked to um, participate in teaching Sunday School this morning, and we're going to be addressing this subject. If you notice your outline, it says the key to a strong bibliology is to understand the authoritative nature of the Bible. We want to continue this morning with looking at the Bible, looking at the scriptures, and understanding how to look at them. And so the key to a strong bibliology is to understand the authoritative nature of the Bible. We've been covering this uh, for a little bit of time now. If you look at verses like 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you were to look at verse 16, it says that God breathed his word. He inspired it. The word of God is inspired. And in Titus chapter, two, in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, you'll also notice that God cannot lie. So as we consider the scriptures and their authoritative nature, you're going to notice um, they're breathed out by God. Um, And then the second thing is God's nature. He cannot lie. I remember, um, I'm a graduate from the Master's College. I don't say that very often. Um, I actually have a ring from the Master's College. I've never worn it. Isn't that funny? You get these kind of accolade things. 1990, I graduated. And in 2010, my daughter Courtney graduated. But I remember um, in 1990 going to Bible college. Actually, I started maybe 1987. But one of the classes I came into was bibliology. And uh, you, you need to understand what bibliology is. There's a lot of ologies, right? Um, you know, we see th- uh, theology, and uh, there's a lot of ologies. But bibliology is one of those. I was so excited as a, as a Bible student to just be able to open the Word and have teachers teach me about what bibliology is. What is that? What kind of ology really is that? And so if you notice on your outline, just as an introduction to the subject, um, <clears throat> the key to a strong bibliology, you need to have a strong bibliology to understand the authoritative nature of the Bible. And so... <clears throat> What is bibliology? It's the study of the Bible. Everybody here should be studiers of the Bible. In addition, it's one's view that the scriptures are God's inspired word. Without a proper bibliology, 
and a correct understanding of the authority of Scripture, one will be left clouded and disoriented regarding life's most important issues, such as who Jesus is, such as the Trinity, such as God the Father, God the Spirit, such as issues like eternity, and etc. So a strong bibliology, what is that? It's the view that you're taking of the Bible. According to Rick Holland, who's a professor at the Master's Seminary, he says, quote, in the fog and the confusion of the world's relativism, a strong bibliology, it must be relied upon to give a person justification, motivation, and guidance to think and to speak authoritatively about the Word of God. He goes on to say, a person's bibliology, it must be vigorous and full-bodied. It must be robust. In order to have a strong and robust bibliology, you must understand the authoritative nature, the character of the Bible. And so this morning, that's what we want to do. We want to look at two historical pillars that will develop your bibliology, and it will confirm the authoritative nature of the Bible. So the two things we're hoping to cover this morning is the clarity of Scripture and the doctrine of infallibility of Scripture. So I don't know if you mentioned in my sentence right there, but I'm saying <clears throat> we're hoping to address these two. I'm pretty sure we're going to at least cover one. And if you know me, um, I'll be plucking along here. But if you notice the outline, you're going to notice a clear path to both of those. And so the encouragement was we're going to try to get through both of these. And if we only make it through one, if, uh, uh, if, if, if you so like, you can this week take a look at the, uh, the ones that we don't cover according to the outline here. Okay, so here we go. We're going to take a look at the first one, the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture. And so what is the doctrine of clarity? What is the doctrine of clarity? Let me ask that as a question. Um, what is the, by the way, and this is good. This is, this is supposed to be interactive, and I know I feel like I'm kind of far away from you, but let's be interactive together. Feel free at any time if you have a question or comment, um, feel free to ask that question or comment. So let me just ask, and then I'll pause for a second. What is clarity? What is that? Okay, see without obstruction. Easy to understand. My friend Derek should have something to say about what is clarity. <laughs> what is clarity? I have glasses on to be clear. So what is clarity? We're burning up my time, so come on. Yes. Clear understanding. Unobscured. Right, so yes. Right. Yes. Just to paraphrase what uh, Jared is saying is some people use um, the excuse that the Bible is obscure and the Bible is unclear about this and therefore they sin or do what they want to do and as a result of that um, right, they're justifying that the Bible's unclear so they can do what they want to do. Um, I hope I paraphrased that. 
somewhat correctly. Well, good. Good. Let's keep up the class participation. Al, what were you going to say? Straight to the point. Good. Simple understanding, straight to the point, clear and understanding. I mean, I, I could just stop right here. That's it. The doctrine of clarity or perspicuity. It's, that's what, exactly what it is. But let me, let me apply it to this. The doctrine of uh, perspicuity or the doctrine of clarity, when you study the doctrine of clarity, that word perspicuity continues to come up and it means the same the same thing, but God reveals his scripture in an understandable way. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic book of theology, he says the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, it was written in such a way that its teachings are to be understood by ordinary people. Uh, Martin Luther, he believed that God spoke clearly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and intended them to be understood by ordinary, ordinary individuals aided by the, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. He taught that even the most learned people can be blind to the clarity of Scripture because of their lack of illumination and because of their willingness to sin. So this, was, this is why Luther worked extremely hard to translate Scripture into the common language. And guess who was being driven crazy at that time by his actions? The Catholic Church. And so I learned this from the Journal of Historical or the Journal of Evangelical Theology Society, September 1996. So we see what the clarity of Scripture is. Secondly, in your outline, let's move on. The clarity of Scripture, uh, the clarity of Scripture is confirmed. Now I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4. And we're just going to glance at this passage, Matthew chapter 4. And specifically, you'll, you'll notice verses 3 and 4, and then 6 and 7 and 10. We're just going to we're just going to observe this passage, and I think you'll see the sentiment here. As far as the clarity of Scripture, it is confirmed by Jesus himself. And when you look at Matthew chapter 4, you'll notice here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew's recording this. Matthew, after walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus, and now being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's remembering his master's actions. The Spirit of God in this context is taking Jesus into the wilderness, and if you remember, he's going to be tempted there for 40 days. And so here we pick it up at verse 3, and the tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now I want you to observe what Jesus, how he replies in terms of the clarity of scriptures confirmed. Jesus is replying in verse 4, for it is written, do you notice that? And I also want you to notice verse 7. As Satan continues to pick up this temptation way about him towards Jesus, look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it's written. And um, in verse 10, you'll notice, be gone, Satan, for it's written. Look at verse 4 again. Satan is telling him, as the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these loaves to become bread. But Jesus says, for it's written. And then listen to what he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God speaks clearly from his mouth. And he speaks through men who are the tools and the instrument that God uses, but we hear the holy scriptures from the mouth of God. Isaiah's going to say this quite clearly, and I hope to flush that out a little bit. As we go on. But you can see here that Jesus is definitely confirming the clarity of Scripture. Also, we have God who, clar 
who uh, clearly and effectively communicates. Okay, so where do you see God first communicate? Help me out here. I'm hearing it, I'm hearing it, I'm hearing it. Genesis chapter 1, right? I mean, can you imagine if God just thought something tweaky and said it and all of a sudden this, you know, thing, you know. I mean, whatever God says is created. And so we can see here God who clearly and effectively communicates. Genesis 1-3, and if you opened and went there, you could see clearly when, and all through that chapter, God said, God said, God said. And if you were like David in Psalm 19, I love Psalm 19 because what David first says is as a result of God saying, David says, I can look out into creation and see of all of heaven. And David is blown away. He's blown away by the general revelation of God's creation. And in Psalms 19, it's only 14 verses, but in verses 1 to 6, he's basically looking at everything and saying, the day says this, from the night I learned lessons. The moon is like this. The, uh, the sun, the radiant heat of the sun touches everybody. And then he goes in to talk about specifically the scriptures and the word of God and characterizes them with a characteristic, um, how they're um, perfect, restoring the soul. He gives a characteristic and then he displays how they affect man. But I'm just... As, as David was impacted, we should be impacted and understand that God, he clearly and he effectively communicates. Um, recently, I was reading a sermon by, um, by Charles Spurgeon on, on this subject of actually infallibility, but one of the things I found interesting was Isaiah chapter 1, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 58. You'll see a reference there, but the interesting thing that Spurgeon develops is from the mouth of God, from the mouth of God. And so what's interesting when you hear from the mouth of God and the thing that I think is stunning about how God clearly and effectively communicates, I want you to turn to Isaiah 46. Turn there for a moment, Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. This is a wonderful portion of scripture in the section it's about the salvation that's coming. And he's also in this section going to be talking about some judgment consequences in the near future. And so in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, as far as God, who clearly and effectively communicates, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Look at verse 10, declaring do you hear? He speaks, he declares, he says, he says the end from the beginning. That's amazing. I mean, how is it that God can effectively communicate in such a clear way because he already knows what's at the end. He already sees it clearly and therefore he then communicates it clearly and we're the recipient of his absolute clear communication. So we can see here the clarity of Scripture confirmed that Jesus confirms it and God the Father confirms it. Let's move on to section number three. Now, is there opposition to the clarity of Scripture? I mean, Jared made a great astute point. That's exactly right. So let's talk about this for a second. Here's a question, and then I'll kind of slow down and pause. The question is this. 
What kind of opposition do you see concerning the clarity of Scripture? What kind of opposition do you see? What opposition is there to the clarity of Scripture? The relativity of truth. Everything is relative. I mean, I would, I would caution us. This is simple. Maybe a debatable point, but the spirit of the age, it's like this relativism. I say something, and then you stretch it over here, and the next thing you know, we're not saying anything. We should listen to each other. Points need to be made with one another. But relativism, for sure, obscures. For sure. What else? Sorry, I'm, I'll calm down here. And Yes, Rebecca. Yes. 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 Really good point. Um, it's, it's your truth. Think however you want to think, right? What else? What else are those things? Tanae? Yes. Yes. Right. So today's point is, um, there are Bible teachers that say one thing about one thing, and other teachers say one thing about the other thing. And you're going to notice that Scripture needs to be interpreted by Scripture, and God will make things super clear as we stick to biblical principles. But absolutely. Um, we can obscure truth by just simply listening to the arguments. And there, there are disciplines that we as personal believers need to understand and apply to our own life so we don't get on those treadmills or get caught up into that type of, type of thing. So what kind of opposition do you see concerning uh, the clarity of Scripture? Anything else? Jared is pointing out the emotional versus the intellectual um, issues of Scripture and, and then the idea of saying, um, are you sure Scripture says that? Now listen to what he said. Where, where does that remind us? Genesis chapter 3. Well, are you sure God said that? And, and here we go. Uh, this is act, actually the obstacle. I mean, this is from the beginning. Satan comes to Eve, and uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, you can read this story, and are you sure, are you sure God really said that? And I mean, I, I wish, I, you know, in my own mind, I'm kind of an imagery guy. I, you know, I mean, it's way, it would look way, way more sinister than I can even conjure up in my own thinking. But you can think about that story of the woman being approached by uh, the Satan by the serpent, and I conjure it up, I bet you it's way, way more dark and deeper than we even understand, and more sinister and more um, alluring. And the next thing you know, she's disobeying the God of the universe who's clearly communicated. And so, um, very good, very good points about that. Yes, from the very beginning. So what are those obstacles? Satan himself. 
What are the other obstacles, false teachers? If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, just look there, 2 Peter chapter 2. I mean, when you want to look at this kind of an issue about the obscurity of, the obscurity of Scripture, um, there's only three chapters to, to, did I say Timothy? Look at Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm hoping I said that. 2 Peter chapter 2. And when we're talking about the obscurity of Scripture, you're going to see false teachers are going to be in the way there. And anytime you want to learn about false teachers obscuring the truth, look at 2 Peter chapter 2 or look at Jude. Jude is just a few verses long as the book in the Bible, Jude. But those are two places you can go to observe false teachers. Paul's war- uh, Peter's warning about the false teachers that are going to creep in. And so in the context, and I just want you to look at verse 1, but in the context, Peter's giving the truth. 2 Peter is only three chapters long. The first chapter is on salvation, and then he ends the chapter completely talking about the truth of Scripture. And then, which makes sense, he then goes into this issue of the false teachers in chapter 2. And then he's going to encourage the believer about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But here, you'll notice the context. Peter gives truth about God's salvation and his word, and then he warns that false teachers will come. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also are arose among the people. That's just a reference back to the Old Testament. He's saying Israel dealt with this too. False prophets would come up and they would say things misrepresenting God. Just look at verse 1, just as there will be false teachers among you, and he's talking about now in the church, um, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so we also see here, um, look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 15 specifically. You know, you're going to have the ignorant and the unstable. I mean, you're going you're gonna to have ignorant people. Um, I mean, those are people who do not know. Uh, the ignorant and the unstable. Those are the unstable person is the one that says it like this, and then the next thing you know, out of the next side of their face, they're saying it like this. They are completely unstable. And it's amazing if you listen to people you're going to see them communicate in an unstable way. Wait a minute, you just said this, and now you're saying that, which completely will contradict itself. And so Peter's just making this point that there, is, there are ignorant, unlearned, and unstable people that are going to obscure. And in fact, in this case, in context, they're obscuring Paul's apostolic communication. And Peter's going to comment on that. Peter's going to comment on how these ignorant and unstable people will even try to malign the Apostle Paul. Peter's going to comment on this. So 2 Peter chapter chapter 3, verse 16, just take a look at it. It's in the context of Peter's teaching about the second coming. Jesus is coming back, and the mockers are, oh yeah, we keep hearing this. We keep hearing you say Jesus is coming back. He never does. And so Peter's encouragement to them is, God is a very patient God and wants to save his elect. In verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord and Savior, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, verse 16, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them these matters, talking about the second coming, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now I want to just pause right there. Does that say these things are obscure, unclear? They're hard to understand. To understand the Bible, I mean, take a look at the 12 chapters of Daniel 
And how many people can read those 12 chapters and all of a sudden recapitulate to you, oh yeah, this is exactly how the second coming and this is exactly how the coming of Christ is going to happen. I mean, there's not very many people. It takes a lot of work to sift through all the details. And there's not very many of us that are actually skilled enough to do that. Now, it's not to discourage you and say, don't. I'm just telling you it takes a lot of work. And not very, very many of us are skilled enough and actually can actually carry that load and actually do it. And so we have to re refer back to historical things that are written and, and people who have skill to do these kind of things. But the ignorant and the unstable, um, you know, they're definitely a part of this. The false teachers, the ignorant and unstable. Ignorant and unstable, I think, is just, you know, those people that not necessarily like the Joel Osteen standing up in front of thousands. They're just ignorant and unstable, and they keep, they keep promoting things they should not promote. I mean, which is a warning to us. Don't be part of the ignorant and unstable. I mean, that's just a practical application for us when we think about this. Okay, so we see here uh, these obstacles, and let me move on to say the Catholic Church claims uh, to be obscure. The, the, the Catholic Church claims that the Bible is obscure. I was just reading some articles recently about the, the Catholic Church concern for the Scriptures being obscure. And did somebody say something? And um, I thought it was interesting because when I started to look at infallibility, which means it means trustworthiness, <laughs> I, I thought this was interesting. The Catholic Church, who's led by the Pope, the, su the, su the succession of Christ, he claims himself to be infallible and yet claims the scriptures to be not clear and obscure. I mean, that's from the pit. <laughs> I'm just a simple guy, but I'll tell you that's from the pit. <laughs> Just, I might not have a degree behind my name, but I'm just telling you that kind of thing is from the pit. He, he claims himself, and the Catholic Church claims the Pope to be infallible, completely trustworthy, and yet the Bible to be obscure. John MacArthur rightly points out, he says this, the dominant Roman Catholic idea had been that the Bible was obscure and difficult to understand, but the Reformers disagreed. Now, they still believe that, but I'm, he's pointing back to that context of the Catholic Church and the Reformers. The Reformers disagreed, um, arguing instead, and it was, a, it was a fight, spiritually speaking, right? The Catholic Church is saying ordinary people can't do this, but so here he's commenting on the Reformers arguing instead um, for the Bible and its understandability. Rather than limiting biblical interpretation to just the clergy and the magisterium, the reformers encouraged lay Christians. <gasps> I mean, can you imagine? They encouraged lay Christians to study and interpret the word of God on their own. And this is why men like William Tyndale, this is why we look back upon history and we can see men that have, that have fought to make sure the clarity of God's word is understood. Let me give you one more obstacle. This is amazing. I don't know if you've ever heard this name. Brian McLaren, a leader in the Emergent Church movement. Uh, he claims that the Bible is obscure. Let me just breeze through this. In, in a 2005 interview, McLaren says regarding certainty, he says, when we talk about the word faith and we talk about the word certainty, we've got a whole lot of problems, says McLaren. By the way, the, the emerging church movement is, quote unquote, a Christian Protestant movement, the emergent church movement. So he says, when you mention the word faith and the word certainty, we've got a whole lot of problems. What do we mean by certainty? 
he questions. Certainty can be dangerous with a question mark. In his book, In a Generous Orthodoxy, McLaren points to, he points to, his point is to promote the notion of ambiguity. And he gives a warning, actually, in his book. He gives a warning to the readers, and here's what it says, quote, here's a warning I'm giving my readers. As in most of my other books, there are places where I have gone out of my way to be provocative, mischievous, and unclear, reflecting my belief that clarity is sometimes overrated and that shock, obscurity, playfulness, and intrigue, when it's carefully articulated, often stimulates more than clarity does. Page 22 and 23 of his book. I know I was, I read this to today and I'm like, can you, listen, can you believe this? <laughs> and just, it's like, uh, enough said. Definite obstacles that are, trying to, that are trying to prevent the fact that we can understand the Bible very, very clearly. Okay, here's a question for us. By the way, any questions? Any comments? Okay. I'm open for it if, you're, if you have a question or a comment. Look on your outline, how can you personally understand the clarity of Scripture? How can you personally understand the clarity of Scripture? Maybe here's something I could ask. If you have clarity, what is that going to develop in your own character? If you're clear about something, what is that going to develop? Trust? What is it? Conviction, endurance, endurance. immovable, faith, right, if, if you have clarity, I mean, can you, even, can you even imagine a guy saying that, representing God? Um, but these are all positive things. Let me ask you this way, too. If you don't have clarity, but you have obscurity, what does that kind of thing develop in your life? Doubts? Insecurity? Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that unstable person that's... Can you, can you see it? I mean, look at, a child that has, look at a child that has clarity, and look at a child that has obscurity, ambiguity. Look at that. That, and you don't, you, I mean, you just observe it. Create that, create, that, create that clarity in their lives. Create that obscurity in their lives. You, I mean, what more of an illustration can be given right there? So how can you know? Um, how can you personally understand the clarity of Scripture? And I'm going to point to two things as we're kind of moving through this. Two things. Now, there's a whole lot of principles. There's a, there's a hermeneutic principle. I mean, that's a whole class in itself, the idea of hermeneutics. That is the science, the, the science be, that is the study of Scripture, um, hermeneutics. I, I, but let me just give you a couple principles to just think about in terms of if this morning you're here and you're trying to understand, can I really be clear on the Scriptures? Is this something really for me that I can really dig into and personally understand? how simply clear the scriptures are. Principle number one is this. 
Principle number one is that you understand God only has one interpretation. He only has one interpretation to his, to his scriptures. There's only one. Doesn't matter what Wayne says. Doesn't matter what Nick says. Doesn't matter what John MacArthur says. Doesn't matter what Isaiah says. Obviously, in the incarnate of what, I mean, in the, uh, I'm talking outside of um, uh, his, I'm sorry, I got myself in trouble there with Isaiah. <laughs> Whoop. Let me take a big step back and not have to explain myself. Okay. It really doesn't matter. I mean, we talked about this, the point of like, uh, you know, uh, what scripture means to me. That's why it's dangerous when you have leaders that are leading Bible studies and they say, and I, I don't mean to step on anybody's foot. I, I know it's just an easy thing to fall into, but what does the scripture mean to you? Uh, that's not, that's just the wrong question. The, the scripture is what is God saying? That, that is the hermeneutical principle. We should die on that principle. That's how important that principle is. Men in the past have died for that principle. God has one thing to say. He has one interpretation of his scripture. Now, don't misunderstand. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. John 14, abiding in the vine. I get it. There's a bunch of different interp interpretations of John 14, 1 through, uh, 1 through 8, and I won't get into it, but I, I get it. There are things that are hard to understand, but we can reasonably allow Scripture. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1646 and 47, interestingly enough, written by reformers that were taking stands, their very first article is about the Word of God. And in that article, it's in section number nine, they say Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. That's what it is. That's what it is. And so if you have a point to make, make sure it's biblical and make sure you're biblically supporting it with Scripture. And if you're unclear, that's okay. I'm unclear all the time. Ask my family. I'm super unclear. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think you see the point. How is it that we can understand, and the way we understand is God has one interpretation of scripture. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and see if I can just work through this with you. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16, uh, 16 through 21. But let me, let me see if I can encourage you this way. How important it is that you see that the Bible has one interpretation I want you to put your thinking caps on just for a moment and think of Matthew 17. You don't have to turn there, obviously. Look at 2 Peter 1. But Matthew 17 is this transfiguration. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're up there, and here they are just in normal reality. And the next thing you know, Jesus has peeled back reality, and they're in this spiritual incredible situation where Elijah and Moses is talking to Jesus. I mean, I try to put your mind around that one. Just think about that for a moment, and then I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter is making this point to the believers. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths, okay? Folklore. This is not a tradition. This is not something that we just kind of fuzzily see and passed on to because it was a great story. He says, we don't follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. And I'm just trying to point out here, look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well and pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you see the imagery there? Until the day dawns and the morning stars arise in your hearts. But look at verse 20. Let me just point this out in terms of how can you personally know the scriptures are clear. Look at what Peter says based on being inspired by God, verse 20. He says, know this first of all. This is Peter giving God's inspired word. He says in verse 20, know this first of all. This is an emphatic point. He's stressing something here. The context of his writing is about the truth. He says, know this first of all. Look at the second part. He says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Scripture isn't about personal opinion. It's really not. It's about what has God said in a clear way. We should be more caught up saying what God is saying in a clear way than what we think. <laughs> for sure. Look at the next part of it. Scripture wasn't produced by men, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Scripture is not about man. Man wants to be like this. Woo! <laughs> My, my older brother, Bill, and I used to have this joke, you know, when we would get caught up in ourselves, and he would look at me sometimes because I was getting caught up in myself, and he would go like this, woo-hoo. <laughs> and I got the message pretty clearly. This is not about us. This is about God. And you need to sense the privilege of that. And you need to work at hearing his scripture, and it's only one interpretation. For no scripture of Prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Isaiah didn't have it within him to produce what was produced from Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and it goes on and on. So scripture is from God. Look at verse 21. But men spoke from God. God is the origin. That's why this is clear. God is the origin. And then lastly, look at verse, the part, last part of verse 21. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit... This is an amazing, clear work, and the first thing that we can do to understand personally the clarity of Scripture is to understand there's only one interpretation to it. And yes, we, we might be confusing in explanations. We, we might not have our articulation clear, but you can't look at Scripture and make a judgment on it because of how we handle that. Scripture is absolutely 100% clear. Okay, here's the second thing. You want to be clear, personally knowing that you can understand the clarity of Scripture? Be responsible to handle the Word of God. Be responsible to handle the Word of God. I mean, I became a Christian when I was in my young, young 20s. I graduated from the California public school system, and I couldn't tell you what a verb was. I had read one book, and uh, I think that was The Black Stallion. I'm just telling you, uh, it was a difficult thing for me. When God saved me, he immediately taught me the importance of reading. And I'm still way behind. But here's the point. If you want to know about the clarity of Scripture, if you want to know about God's clarity of Scripture, you're going to be responsible to handle his Scriptures. There's no excuses here. There's no excuses. I mean, maybe you need to learn to read so then to jump on to learning more about Scripture. But clearly... 
God communicates through his word, and that's just the way God is, if you think about how intelligent God is. But in 2 Timothy, turn there real quickly. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. By the way, unfortunately, we won't get to infallibility. I, I'll let you know that so, we, so you don't feel like I'll press you through that. I wish we could. <laughs> I really was edified to learn about that. But the second point here, be responsible to handle the Scriptures. When you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, yes, Paul, the apostle, is speaking to Timothy, the apprentice, and he's pressing him to handle accurately the Word of God. But I want to encourage us about something. Timothy didn't live in a vacuum. He, didn't, he wasn't pressed by Paul to, to handle accurately the Word of God. Uh, he, he, did, he was being pressed there to be an example of how to do it. And all of us in here, we're, we're not to just look at, it as, at, at the example and go, oh, that's really great. We're actually to put feet to this. We're actually not, not just looking at the example, but we are called to handle rightly the Word of Scripture. This is how we can be confirmed of the clarity of it when we read it and handle it and touch it. I mean, there are some young men here. There, there are people here that I know that are reading Scripture and working really hard at it, and it's a beautiful thing. We have fellowship around that. So be responsible to handle accurately the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 15. Study is what it says. And interestingly in the Greek, this word study, it means to make an effort or to be diligent. Study. You need to do that. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you're used to being involved with a study, but I want to get you acquainted thinking in your own mind. If you don't think this way, please repeat this in the privacy of your own mind. I need to be a studier. You do. You really do. You need to pick it up. You need to read it. And if you can't, ask for help. That's what it's all about. So study to make yourselves, uh, to make an effort. That's what it means, to make an effort. Secondly, <clears throat> to be responsible to handle the Word of God. Be acceptable to God in your study of the Scriptures. Look what it says. To show yourselves approved unto God. Remember Cain and Abel in, in Genesis chapter 4? Cain's... Uh, Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable. Uh, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. That word there means respect. It means to be accepted and to be respected and to be honored. And it's interesting. Um, show yourselves approved unto God. So when God sees your study, he's an honor. He honors that. He respects it because you've made an effort here. Some of the translations, anyway, so... But, here, but here's really the driving point of this. Don't be lazy. Don't be, uh, don't be unconscientious or shallow, which will lead to error. So you need to show yourselves approved by God. And then be a worker. Be a worker of the scriptures. I had some work done in my front yard with cement. And then a couple years later, I had some work on my backyard with some cement. And so now I have two different crews um, over a period of time, I had a, a crew that did the front and a crew that did the back. And I can clearly tell you, those that did the front were not good workers. Those that did the back, great workers. I'm just telling you, when you look at a bad worker, you got cracks and you got all sorts of just things that are just, for two years it just drove me miserable. Man, I spent this money on that. It was, it was just horrible. <laughs> we should learn to be workers. 
One of the crafts that you have, it doesn't matter who you are, it should be to study God's word. It doesn't matter where you are and who you are, you should be a studier of God's word. That's what Christians do. And so the last thing is be a worker, but then the last thing is be responsible to accurately handle the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you know, many of you heard this illustration, but you know, when you're dealing with fabric and you need to put two pieces together, if it wasn't cut directly, you know, you could get all sorts of different, um, some different issues. But here, we're just to cut the fabric straight and clear. And so when you put it together, um, you understand it and you can see it and it's actually, it makes sense and it's a beautiful piece. So be responsible to accurately handle the Word of God. That's what we're called to. So how can you personally know how can you personally know that the scriptures are clear? Know this, there's only one interpretation. And number two, know that you have to really work hard at being a studier. So, 944. If I had any goal today, I heard, I've heard Craig say more and more and more, hard break. Hard break at 945. I'm good with that. I'm totally good. So, a comment here, but I'm going to go for it now. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. Al's question is this. Okay, 66 books in the books of the scriptures that have been canonized and clear. I'm going to give you the shortened version, and you and I are going to chat about this, because this is good fellowship. Um, but he's talking about the extra-biblical. Like Catholics have an extra-biblical, right, attached to them. Mormons have a different Bible. Everybody swears on the Bible. We really believe it, and yet they have another book. Mormons have it, the JWs, sure they believe the Bible, and yet um, they listen to the Watchtower. So it's 9.45, and I'm not going to let it click to 9.46, so I'm, I'm going to honor that. So Coffee time it is, that's exactly right. Me and Al are doing coffee time this week. It just clicked to 9.46. All right, let's pray together and we'll be done. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, for giving us, giving your children the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, how, how could we even approach your holy words without the Spirit of God illuminating our minds and moving us to understand? We just praise you. We praise you. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.